You're listening to Once a Raider, Always a Raider on the Raiders Podcast Network. Here's your host, JT the Brick. Hey everybody, I'm JT and welcome to Once a Raider, Always a Raider, Episode 2. Today on the podcast, we continue our deep dive into the life and career of Tom Flores, speaking with Hall of Fame defensive end Howie Long. In addition to being one of the greatest players to ever don the silver and black, Howie has a unique relationship with Coach Flores, one based on mutual respect and a shared commitment to excellence. Howie was incredibly generous with his time, so I hope you enjoy our conversation with the Hall of Famer, Howie Long. Howie, great to see you. Great to talk to you again. And how are you? How excited are you to talk about Coach Flores, who had such a big impact on your life? I'm very excited to talk about it, but I want to know who was in episode one. <laughs> Paul, Mag- <laughs> Paul McGuire. Paul McGuire, who had a big oh, okay. impact on his life. How about that? How about that? No, I'm, I'm very excited, and I'm so thrilled for him. And, you know, there are guys like you know, Coach Flores and the late Cliff Branch, and I, I wish to God Cliff had gotten in, you know, to the Hall of Fame before he passed. And so happy for Tom and his wife and his family and all these years. And, you know, the only thing you could take away from it is say it's so much sweeter now after waiting so long. And it's, and it's been a long wait. And I, I think for me, coming from Villanova back in Oakland in 1981, when I first went down there, I just turned 21. And uh, first thing you have to know about Tom is he's just a good man. You can't say that about every coach, every player, and, you know, an assistant coach, et cetera, et cetera. He, he's just a good man. And he was kind of a father figure to me early on. Someone that I think in his own quiet way commanded the room, which is a real challenge. And I've always... I've always said that's a that's a real art form for a head coach to walk up in front of that room with, you know, grown men from all points across the country and, you know, all backgrounds. And you've got to find a way to connect with all of those guys. And, and, and I think the fascinating part for me, and I think it, they had just won a Super Bowl in 80-81 and the team didn't respond well the next year. And uh, I think part of it was they were still partying from, you know, the year prior in the Super Bowl. And I think Tom replacing a legend in John Madden and coaching a team of, you know, we had a really unique group of guys and it was a real challenge to want to coach and be able to coach that that group of men, you know, Ted Hendricks, Lyle Alzado, Lester Hayes, Matt Millen, Cliff Branch, you know, the list goes on and on. Art Shell, Gene Upshaw, you know, the whole thing. It's one of the things that I think is, is you can't say enough about and maybe is underestimated that one that Tom replaced John Madden. Let's just start there. John fastest to 100 games, won a Super Bowl in a, in a really the glory days of that division, that conference, battles with the Steelers, the Oilers, and, you know, and all those teams, Denver, and really remarkable run. And then Tom comes in 
And Jim Plunkett is a guy that drafted number one in New England. At that time, I think it was the Boston Patriots. Got beat up there badly and went to San Francisco and didn't go well there. And, and uh, Al saw something that maybe a lot of people didn't see. And Tom and, to me, Jim were kindred spirits, both understated, not rah-rah kind of guys. But when they spoke, it was, it was impactful. And he was someone that early on for me, you got to remember, when I got in the NFL, I didn't have a driver's license. I had my first bank account. I was making 38 grand. It was like $1,007 after taxes every week. You know, back then, there's no connection to anyone at home. And I'm in Oakland, and I've gone from Villanova, where there's a priest on every floor, to the Oakland Raider locker room, where there's no priest to be found. And that group of men that I talked about, Tom had a way of rallying that group together and gaining the respect of that group and leading that group to not one but two Super Bowls is really remarkable. Yeah, you've given us a lot there, Howie. I want to go back to you when you started because this is such an important moment for you. If you can recall when you first met Coach Flores and the first impression, you talked about a father Mm -hmm. figure, but for you to travel that far across the country at that age and all of a sudden Coach Flores is around you, did you feel instantly that you had that bond and he would have that impact on you? Well, you know, I think you're, you're somewhat wide-eyed. You know, when you, when I, as I mentioned, you go for Villanova and you're not playing on TV and all of a sudden you're in the NFL and you're lining up against Art Shell and Gene Upshaw in practice. You know, it, it's a big jump. And there were some bumps early on. And I think through my position coach, Earl Leggett, and Charlie Sumner, defensive coordinator, the late Charlie Sumner, who was, who was great, and Earl, who's the best, I, I think, ever a defensive line coach, and Tom, who he made sure that you were right. And he did it in an understated way. And I was a young kind of wild guy. And First bank account, and as I mentioned, got my driver's license and, you know, didn't know how to even get an apartment. And so there were a lot of challenges and a lot of things that I had to kind of, you know, work my way through as a, as a young player and came in and rushed a passer on third down. And it was, it was really magical, you know, in Oakland. And the team wasn't good that year coming off the Super Bowl, but bounced back immediately in, in, in 82, which I, I think, again, speaks to Tom's leadership and impact. When you go to the Super Bowl, you win the Super Bowl in 80-81. In 81 season, my rookie year, the team is terrible. And, you know, I mean, for a number of reasons that we won't get into, but then to bounce back in 82, a strike-shortened year, and think about this. We're practicing in Oakland, and we're playing in L.A., I'm living in a hotel room with Lyle Alzado for five months. Every game is a road game. There's a strike in the middle there. And we came just short and probably were a team that should have challenged for the Super Bowl and we're in the playoffs and had a couple of bad breaks and, and it just didn't work out. And then to come back the next year in 1983 and that team, although statistically, you look at it and you go defensively, offensively, it's was not great, but 
we ended up playing a Washington team in the Super Bowl that set a scoring record that stood from 1983 to the Chris Carter, Randy Moss, Minnesota Vikings teams. That's big. I mean, you look at them on film and you say, oh my God, how are we going to stop that? And we played them earlier in the year. Marcus was hurt. Cliff pulled a hamstring, Cliff Branch, in the game. You know, we had a couple of guys out, but it was, I remember it was a really hot game and they, they beat us 42-38 or something like that on a screen pass to Joe Washington, ironically enough. Fast forward to the Super Bowl, backed up again, and they had beaten us with that screen pass to Joe Washington, backed up on third down. And it's third down or second and long in the Super Bowl. And we replaced Matt Millen with Jack Squirek. He spies on Joe Washington. We run a jet rip, blue slash. I slant inside. Ted Hendricks comes off the corner. And Mike, Mike Davis comes off the edge on a, on a blitz. And we get pressure on, on Joe Theismann. And he dumps the ball off to Joe Washington. And Jack Squirek, who no one knows his name at that point nationally, picks the ball up, goes in for a touchdown. And, the way that Tom handled that football team, handled the team that won the Super Bowl, then the bad year in 81, then the strike year in 82, where we're playing every game is on the road. Think about that. Every single game is on the road. And we almost make it to the Super Bowl. And then in 83, we make it to the Super Bowl. We don't do that. I'm not sure if there's another coach. I mean, we had some wild characters and, you know, there were guys that were out late and, you know, but they showed up to work and, and they, they did their job. But every once in a while, somebody had to be kind of leaned on or talked to. And when Tom spoke up, and it, and it was rare when Tom kind of raised his voice, but when he did, he had the attention of the room. Well, that's what I want to stay with. You're all about loyalty as long as I've known you and your legacy. How did Tom have the trust in all of you guys? I mean, I know you played like hell on Sunday and won in the history of Coach Madden and Mr. Davis, Al Davis. But you talk about Coach Flores raising his voice. Did you have to gain his trust early? Let's talk about your early career. When did Coach Flores first trust you where he could count on you every game? I think it was like 82. You know, I came in and rushed the quarterback my rookie year. And, you know, it was just the speed of the game a lot of young players and people don't realize, you know, I think people have attention deficit when it comes to young players, particularly a quarterback or pass rushers. And, you know, I ended up having six, seven sacks my rookie year and they didn't count sacks back then. It was, it was the perfect role for me at that time while I'm evolving every day in practice versus really good players. 82, I think by the time we got to week four, you know, whatever, game five, I started to look like the player I would become in 1983. And Tom really never had to, to bark at me. I was on time. I worked hard. You know, I, I did what I was supposed to do. The only time I think Tom ever raised his voice to me, I'd gotten in a fight at work. It turned out to be a bad one. I didn't start the fight, but it was a bad one. And, you know, they had to call in a plastic surgeon and Tom had me up in the office and it was really the only time he's ever raised his voice at me. He told me not to beat anybody else up on the team. And, and I, you know, didn't do it again. But once again, I didn't start the fight, but it was just one of those awkward kind of bad deals where, 
you know, you're either good at that or you're not. And I was, and he wasn't, and you know, that's the deal. But Tom, Tom didn't have to raise his voice. And that's the overriding kind of theme for me. And, and when he did a little bit in a group meeting or on the field, everyone listened. And that's respect. It's not about us trusting Tom. It was just there. And, and when you're coaching that kind of group, it was just the way the organization functioned. The way the organization functioned at that time was it was a bit of a pirate ship, you know, and there were guys that stayed out really late and sometimes showed up a little late, but they always showed up for practice and they certainly always showed up to play. And I think he knew that and he trusted that. It was a locker room that could kind of police itself to a certain extent. So if there's someone in the room that's not doing what they're supposed to do, it was taken care of on the spot or, or later on. For Tom in that Super Bowl, Super Bowl 18 was your first championship victory, but it was Tom's fourth, second as head coach. How happy were you for him? Did you feel like this was a monster legacy play for him as fourth overall all title, second with the Raiders? Did you instantly think, Howie, that he was in elite company? Well, at 23 years old, and I just turned 24 at the Super Bowl, you're not thinking legacy. You know, here's what I'm thinking at the Super Bowl in Tampa Bay in 83-84 season. I'm looking around me, and I've got Marcus Allen. I've got an offensive line. I've got Todd Christensen. I've got Cliff Branch and Ted Hendricks and Lester Hayes and Mike Haynes. And it goes on and on and on. Lyle Alzado, uh, Bill Pacquiao, Greg Townsend, who just a great player. Uh, and a great teammate, I'm thinking, boy, this is easy. We'll do this every year. And, you know, came to realize later on how, how challenging it was. But, you know, my respect for Tom was almost instant, and, and it never really faltered. And, and I didn't view Tom after the 83 season up here versus where I viewed him in 82. It was always here. You look at somebody like what really stood out to me in 83, 84 season at the Super Bowl was, and I didn't grasp how difficult it was until the end of the game when the clock's running down and Lyle Alzado, who came to us in 82, who had played all those years in Denver and Cleveland and had fallen short of attaining that championship ring and all that comes with that. He's standing on the sidelines just crying like a baby at the end of the Super Bowl. And it hit me as a 24-year-old then, wow, this is, this is bigger than, you know, I thought. You know, I'm thinking with all these players around me and Coach Flores and everyone else, hell, we're, we're going to go back again. And we never ended up going back. Yeah, that's interesting to me because you shared with me in the past how you got to the Super Bowl that day. If you could share that. And now you're seeing yeah. Lyle, your roommate, crying at the end of the game. There's a lot of time, right. Howie, in between how you got, if you could share with us, Coach Flores' team and how he counted on you to prepare <clears throat> and get to the Super Bowl. Well, Lyle and I always took a cab to the game, whether it was a home game or a road game. We wanted to be there early. Lyle would get dressed. He'd lay down on the floor in front of his locker and go to sleep. I'd get dressed, I'd go out and run some 50s and get loose and 
I would go over the formation sheets over and over and over and over again. I couldn't, I couldn't get enough of near I left, far, dot, I, whatever it was. Lyle didn't even want to know what dot was or near I or far I. That's how different we were. So two stories. We, in 1982, as I said, we're, we're playing every game on the road. And it's our first game in Los Angeles. We're at the Hyatt downtown, right on the verge of being downtown in LA. We're going to go to the Coliseum. We don't know where the Coliseum is. We've never been there. We get a cab, and I don't know where the cab driver was from, but you know, obviously it wasn't Los Angeles. And, and Lyle and I get in the car, and we're driving, and we're driving, and we don't know where we're going. And all of a sudden, we pull into Dodger Stadium. We told the guy, take us to the stadium. And Lyle, the, the needle is on red. He's, he's ready to just choke the cab driver. He's, do I look like Don Manningly to you or something like that? So we finally get to the stadium. Now, fast forward to the Super Bowl in Tampa. Now, trying to envision this in today's world where they block the streets off, there's police escorts, there's snipers up on the roofs of the building. You know, it, our world has changed drastically. And the game has become bigger and bigger and bigger. And the Super Bowl has become bigger and bigger and bigger. Lyle and I, like our routine, at the end of our, our pregame meal, they would always do the depth chart on special teams because special teams are kind of chaotic. In the middle of the game, if somebody goes down, a starting offensive lineman or defensive tackle or DB might be the next guy up as the L2 on the kickoff team or the punt return team or punt coverage team. And you want to make sure that you have all that down. So we had a roll call. We always did that. Then Lyle and I had our bags with us and we got right outside and got in a cab and went to the stadium down in Tampa Bay. The only problem was traffic was so bad. We got stuck in traffic. And again, Lyle's mad at the cab driver because he won't go up on the curb. We have to get out of the car three quarters of a mile from the stadium with our bags on our shoulders and walk through the parking lot. Try to envision this. Lyle and I are walking through the parking lot of the stadium to the crowds of people, to the stadium, to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 18. Amazing. Incredible. Howie, I wanted to ask you more about Tom when he was retiring from the Raiders in 1988. What was going through your mind? Was it a happy day or a sad day for you? Well, you know, you're not sure, you're not sure what direction people are going to go in. If they transition from, are they transitioning to real retirement or is it, you know, you're not privy to what goes on upstairs. And, you know, we all have our kind of expiration date wherever we are in, in, in any job. You know, I have one at Fox. I've been fortunate enough to be there 28 years, but my 13 came up with the team and it was a decision that I made. I'm not sure if it was a decision that Tom made, and I wasn't sure then if it was a decision that Tom made. And I know Tom came back and coached coached other places, but uh, Tom's a Raider head coach. Tom's a Raider player. Tom's a Raider Hall of Famer, and Tom is a Raider legend. And that's that's the best the best way I can put it. Before we get to him getting inducted and getting the call. How did you handle it, Howie, all the years he didn't get the call? Here's your coach, a father figure to you. You're a Hall of Famer, the legacy to Mr. Davis, and you're waiting year in and year out for your coach to get the call or be nominated. Well, it's a complicated room 
from what I gather, I'm not in the room, and now there are a couple of players in the room. You know, everyone has an agenda, whether it's a quarterback from another team that's in the room who's trying to get his coach in, who might be not necessarily all that glowing in his praise of Tom, or, you know, everyone has an agenda in the room, and it's a barter kind of thing, I, I, I guess. And it's to be fair to the people in the room, when you sit down and you look at the list every year, let's say it's the last 15 guys. You're looking at those 15 guys and you're saying, wow, that guy's a great player. That guy's a great player. Well, that guy's a great player. How do you make that cut? It's a challenge. With the coaches, it's, there's fewer coaches up for, up for induction. And I know how much it means to Tom and I know how much it means to his wife and his family. And I know how much it means to the players that played for Tom. And I know how much it means to the organization that Tom finally got the call. And I'm so happy for him. Really, that's the thing. When he, get the, when he got the call, you're really happy because all those years he didn't make it, as best you can, you're working back channels and trying to, you know, hey, wait a second. Why isn't Cliff Branch in the Hall of Fame? Why isn't Tom Flores in the Hall of Fame? Why aren't we looking at Todd Christensen? Why aren't we looking at Lester Hayes? It just doesn't make sense to me. But I'm not quite sure how many people in the room are necessarily, whether it's subconsciously or consciously fans of the Raiders. Now, some of that, I think, dates back to the 70s and the 80s. And some of it is, wait a second, they have so many guys in the Hall of Fame. Let's go in another direction and give another organization a guy that's in the Hall of Fame. And certainly... Every guy that gets in the Hall of Fame is deserving. And like I said, when you're down to 15 or you're down to three or four coaches, all of them, you know, you can look at and say, wow, that guy warrants serious consideration for the Hall of Fame. When one gets in and the three other don't, it's complicated. Then he gets the call. David Baker, yeah. Mark Davis, knock on the door in Palm Desert. How quickly do you get how quickly do you get the call? And we see your announcement, he's your coach, the Super Bowl, you're involved in that process. Walk me through that day or minutes after you got the news. I think the entire Raider family, and particularly those players in the 70s and 80s and players that he played with with the Raiders, dating back to his time as a player, you're so happy that someone like Tom, who one is deserving. And, you know, as a coach, as a, as a player, as you mentioned, four Super Bowls, as a player, assistant coach, and a head coach, that's pretty impressive. And to have that long of a career as a player, as an assistant coach, as a head coach, and to win two Super Bowls in a four-year window is pretty darn special. And when a guy like that who – you know, listen, is everyone who's ever played who's been great? Is everyone who's ever coached that's been great a good guy? Not necessarily. That's not always the case. But I, I think you have to separate church and state. You have to separate great player, great coach versus the kind of person they are. Tom Flores is a good man. And I, I don't think I can say that enough. He's a good man. Uh, he had an impact on me as a young player. Uh, that still resonates to today. 
and I'm sure he had the same kind of an impact to on a number of players that that played in my generation and generations before. Well, Howie, as we wrap this up, you've been very generous with your time. I want to talk about you as a broadcaster and a player and as a Hall of Famer, but I know you also as a husband and a father to your kids, and you have a great relationship. Let's talk about Coach Flores as a father, a husband, a grandfather, and what this accomplishment means to his entire family. Well, I know they love him dearly. I'm not sure that anyone could have a, a, a bad thing to say about Tom. You know, Tom is just a, a good man. I think everyone that's been in contact with Tom would certainly echo that sentiment. You know, he's, that is, I don't want to say it's rare, but it's, it's certainly not always the case when someone that is in a position like Tom was as a player and as assistant coach and certainly as a head coach and two-time Super Bowl coach, Tom never stopped being Tom. I, I think success and money and, and accolades, all they really do is, and you've, you've heard this before, all they really do is accentuate who you really are. And Tom Flores has never changed. He's the same guy he was the minute he stepped into the radio organization as a player and uh, then as an assistant coach and then a head coach. He's never changed. What tells you everything you need to know about Tom Flores is think about all the years that he got passed over. He handled it with class and poise, and that's how he handled everything else. Howie, there is a story about your grandma calling Tom during training Uh, camp your rookie year. Please share that with us. Well, Tom could probably share that with you better than I can. I don't know what was said, but my grandmother, you know, was a significant part of my life growing up. She, she brought me up a, a good portion of my life and was a remarkable woman. She was a widow and, you know, so it was her and her five kids and, you know, and taking in people off the street, and, you know, classic Irish Catholic Boston grandmother. And, you know, I think I remember one time she sent me a card with $10 in it. When I was in the league, she thought I needed some money. I'm like, Ma, I, we, everyone calls her Ma, not just me, but everyone in the family calls her Ma. But he, I, I think she made a call to Tom to make sure that I was going to be okay. And certainly that rookie year in training camp, trust me, I made a couple of calls to home thinking, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make this team. You know, I mean, it's, it's a challenge. It's a big step. You know, I, there were some, certainly some hurdles I had to jump over and some things I had to get done individually to to be a better player and, and fortunately did it. How we spent a lot of time talking about your life and how it locks in with Coach Flores. This could be a tough one. Do you have one memory at the top of the list that you can go to? Rookie year, Super Bowl, heading to the Hall of Fame. One moment that you go back to when I ask you about Tom Flores. Well, it was probably I would go back to 1983. And like I said, the 82 season was a strike shortened season and, you know, we, we had fallen short in the playoffs and 81 was not a great year. And 83, it was, you know, I hit the ground and I thought I was at least one of the top 10 toughest guys in the world at that point. You know, I thought I changed in a phone booth on the way to work. There was nothing I physically felt like I couldn't do. And, and I had been coached great. I had been prepared by Earl Leggett and, you know, guys like Lyle Alzado, Cedric Hardman, you know, people that were impactful to me. 
Matt Millen, Ted Hendricks was a, a big part of my early development. And I had a great year, but when you're in the middle of it, you don't really realize how it's going. You're just, Wednesday's over, it's on to Thursday. Sunday's over, it's on to Monday. And Tom pulled me outside the building like towards the end of the season. He said to me, congratulations. And I said, for what? And he said, you were just named to the All-Pro team and you're going to be going to the Pro Bowl. And it was one of those moments that, you know, it's kind of like on par with walking to the podium at the Hall of Fame or walking off the field at the Super Bowl when Tom pulls me out of the building in El Segundo and I remember it like it was yesterday. And he just pulled me aside and said, congratulations, you were just named to the All-Pro team. And I couldn't even fathom that at 23 years old. But it was a big moment, big moment. And, and he, was, he handled it uh, the way he handled everything else. Tremendous story. Finally, Howie, your message to Coach Flores. Well, I, you know, as he knows, and I've told him, he's a, he's a great man and he had a big impact on me as a, a young player. And I, I just have so much respect for him and his family. And I'm thrilled to death for him. And I so look forward to being in Canton and watching him, one, get his gold jacket and, and two, listening to his induction speech and watching him stand next to his bust and his family and being able to celebrate that day with Raider family and friends. Howie, thanks for joining us on Once a Raider, Always a Raider. Thank you so much. Thank you, partner. We offer our sincere thanks to Howie Long for joining us on the podcast to talk about Coach Flores. And we'd like to say thank you to all who have listened, subscribed, and shared the first two episodes of the show. Episode 3 of Once a Raider, Always a Raider drops October 8th with our next guest, Paul Gutierrez from ESPN. I'm JT, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Once a Raider, Always a Raider. Make sure to download the official mobile app and visit raiders.com history for more historical content.